This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's 4th Estate for the week beginning Monday the 20th of April, live on 2SER Radio and across the community radio network, your weekly look at the world of media and journalism. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight, we're talking TV ratings. How are things working out for SBS as they pursue a commercial direction away from the world news for which they're best known? And as we approach 100 years since the Anzacs arrived in Gallipoli, we'll ask whether the media have taken it a little too far this year. And just when we thought the internet was offering inclusive spaces for women to discuss news and current affairs, we'll look at new research that seems to show the opposite. Well, joining us in the studio this evening are Wendy Bacon, investigative journalist and new Matilda contributor. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Jay. We've also got Yara Bumelem, uh, independent reporter and Al Jazeera contributor. Hi, Yara. Hi, Jack. And magazine journalist Lauren Ingram. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Jack. And joining us on the phone, we have Mark Scully, freelance journalist, formerly of the Australian Financial Review. Hi, Mark. Yeah, good day, Jack. Now, as always, if you've got something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Now, when SBS flagship documentary program Dateline returned to Aussie TVs earlier this year, many industry spectators weren't exactly sure what to expect. Dateline is well known for its in-depth video journalism from around the world, but this year Dateline has been cut back to a 30-minute lighter format in keeping with SBS' new commercial direction. Well, writing in today's Australian, Paul Cleary says the changes at SBS have been spearheaded by their head of news and current affairs, Jim Carroll, and not everyone is happy about it. And while the shorter format seems to be delivering the ratings for Dateline, SBS News has suffered falling ratings in the last 18 months as their news bulletins have turned away from world events and towards domestic news and lifestyle stories. Now it's clear that this is the direction that SBS management are set on taking. Wendy, do the critics just need to lighten up? Uh, look, I don't think so. I mean, I think Dateline has changed so much that really I don't know that it should have even been called Dateline anymore. And I mean, the thing about Dateline is that it didn't have a huge audience, but you can't really judge that because often their stories made a mark in the rest of the media. And, you know, there's many stories I could think of, but one particularly I remember where Mark Davis went to Manus. That that story was enormously important, involved breaking through, going in undercover. And, uh, you know, that's a great loss, that sort of journalism, wherever it happens in the Australian media. And, no, it's not just a question of lightening up. And, actually, I don't think it's going to be a successful recipe for SBS because they have to carve 
carve out a different audience and trying to compete with the commercials I don't think is you know it may in fact be a long-term recipe for failure and that's what I can't help but suspecting you know are they being set up for failure. Mark what do you think about this new direction? Well uh, I mostly look at SBS as a you know as a viewer and I have been attracted to them running more and longer overseas stories and I have noticed they've gone a bit I don't know um, lighter in their content and then produce and some stories which I didn't think really warranted much of a run and I think they've got as Wendy said this is how they differentiate um, themselves from the commercial networks and the ABC and I think they they should be start playing to their uh, strong suit which is the overseas side and I'm a big I was a big Dateline fan of the previous format, I must admit. Lauren, what do you think people expect to see on SBS? Something different from the commercial networks? Yeah, definitely. I think that people are looking for that kind of harder, more serious world news. Um, and I think you can definitely see as well with their their new focus and they are trying to carve out this new, uh, perhaps younger viewer, especially with SBS2 and the feed, which I think the feed actually does some really great things as well. Um, that they're, they're trying to get someone different, and I don't know if that will necessarily work. Yara, you've reported for Dateline in the past. What do you make of this direction? Well, Dateline for a very long time was struggling with its viewers, and I think they needed to come up with something a little bit more innovative, something to gain some more viewers. Um, perhaps it's not what people want, but it seems that there's a ratings boost, so there's that. Um, and in saying that, you know, maybe light, I don't know if lighter stories are the right way to go. Dateline did carve out this niche for itself, um, you know, hard-hitting investigative stories going to remote places that no other Australian network is was going to. Um, and that's what it was known for. But people weren't tuning in. So you've got to strike that balance between getting what viewers want on the TV and also getting that niche sort of journalism that nobody else was doing that you were doing and making it watchable. And just on the shorter time slot, is that enough to tell some of the stories that Dateline's told in the past? Well, a lot of the Dateline stories in the past um, were were a mixed bag of, you know, short and long-form stories. So every now and again there was a one-hour, and it was usually by Mark Davis, who's no longer at the programme, um, but there was also, you know, 10-minute stories or 25-minute stories. Um, and so this, this shorter format where it's 25-minute stories or two stories within 25 minutes, it still plays true to the, the usual format of Dateline. Um, it's, it's a format that foreign correspondent at the ABC has gone to and which works. Um, they're also going to be doing one-hour-long programs so who knows how it will play out the rest of the year. I see. Wendy, now Paul Cleary, who is writing in The Australian, describes SBS's newsroom as moving towards a more female, good-looking and Anglo-Celtic one. Is commercial television's emphasis on a reporter's looks, is that problematic and are they monocultural, these commercial networks? Well, I think, I don't think you'd say that SBS News hasn't been very aware of looks and presentation in the past, actually. I think that they have been, but... Um, it, 
you know, if there is a move to the Anglo-Celtic look, I think that is a great pity. Uh, one of the things that really has been a feature of Australian television is how slow it's been to move to, um, and it's not, it is moving, it's got to move, of course, over time, but, but how slow it has been to move. And I remember, you know, some years ago, I had a postgraduate student who came from Canada who was um, Chi- Chinese background Canadian, and, and he was just so shocked. You know, he said, like in Canada, on commercial television there is all sorts of faces I see myself but I come to Australia and I don't do that and he did a brilliant sort of visual representation of that at the time and it's always um, stuck with me so I would be you know appalled to think there was any and I, I don't have any evidence that there is but if a conscious decision at SBS to move away from towards a more Anglo look that that would be really disturbing but as I said I, I don't actually have the evidence of that no. and I but I assume Paul Cleary does so if that's true that's something very serious because it absolutely goes against the whole original uh, mission of SBS and as I said I think you have to wonder if some of these things will happen if it's not a way of actually undermining the long-term viability of the station although I do agree with what Yara said that um, if things are failing in terms of audience clearly change is needed and you have to to innovate however I think we also need to think about audiences more um, flexibly as also being what is the follow-up what is the online what is the implications for other media as well as just the single medium Mark SBS has always had a mandate to provide multicultural television services that inform, educate and entertain all Australians and reflect Australia's multicultural society. Do you think it's at risk of perhaps failing this mandate? Well, uh, no, I think uh, it's done a fairly good job so far. Uh, I agree with Wendy. You know, it's got to address the audience issues. I used to work with Paul Cleary at the Sydney Morning Herald. I think he's a good journalist, so I'd some of his points he's raised are a bit new to me, but I'd certainly um, give it another look. But it depends. I mean, if everyone suddenly on SBS is going to be, you know, uh, from central casting and they've all got a blonde bob or something, I don't know. I'd be, But at the moment, I don't think they are. I think they've done very well with having a distinct personality. You know, Lee Lin Chin, Mary Kostakidis, they've been great for the network, I think. Yara, do you think they'll maintain their multilingual strengths at, at SBS? I think um, when SBS uh, was brought in, was was brought into to the country, it was kind of it was a different kind of uh, context. Now, back then, there was a lot of immigrants coming in who needed a service that provided uh, news in their own language. Now you can just log online. And you know, get get news from your home country or in in any language that you want. You don't need it to come from one of the publicly funded Australian broadcasters. Um, so SBS does need to kind of change a little bit with how the world is changing and how people are consuming media. And I don't think that necessarily means that. Um, that, it, that there has to be all these different languages or people from different backgrounds. But in saying that, I think that, for instance, the SBS cadetship um, was one of the best training grounds for people who are starting out and who probably cannot crack into a commercial network and um, you know need that sort of training to get in. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that, that they've had going on for the last 10 years and they've brought in some great reporters from from within that cadetship program and it's, it's provided some great opportunities for people who are starting out in, um, in Australian journalism. 
uh, whether or not uh, there is now this uh, you know clear direction or or um, directive from Jim Carroll to get a more uh, Anglo Celtic um, reporter base. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I do still see a lot of multicultural faces at SBS, um, but I guess Paul Cleary has other information. So whether or not SBS would maintain its uh, many language services down down the future, um, it is certainly important as an asset, I suppose, to any newsroom to have journalists who speak many languages. Would you agree? It was it was fantastic walking around the SBS radio newsroom, for instance, where you've got you know someone f- from the Ethiopian network. Arabic was really was was always breaking news. Arabic, uh, the Arabic programs. Um, you know, Hebrew, Hindi, it was this fantastic asset and the newsroom was only, the, the actual TV newsroom was only enriched by it because you would find contacts in other countries, you would find news that otherwise you wouldn't be exposed to and and Australian linked news. So you'd hear about things that are happening in Nigeria to do with an Australian businessman who's returned or, or set up a charity or or maybe is doing something a little bit dodgy. So we had this link to the outside world in the SBS newsroom, and that, that would be a shame to lose. My name's Jack Fisher, speaking to Yarabu Mellum and Lauren Ingram and Wendy Bacon, and on the phone, Mark Scully. Now, this Friday, of course, marks 100 years since Australian and New Zealand forces landed in Gallipoli in present-day Turkey. The date has been on the media calendar for years. TV channels have put big money into Gallipoli-themed television programs, but they haven't got the big ratings the networks were expecting. And of course, in the last week, we've witnessed backlash against brands, including one very big one, Woolworths, who have attempted to co-opt the Gallipoli centenary for their own commercial gain. Now, Fairfax Media is reporting that Channel 9's Carl Stefanovic was going to Turkey, but he won't be going after all. Wendy, has the Australian media overestimated the audience's appetite for ANZAC coverage? I've got a feeling uh, that they definitely have. I think the commercialisation of it is a separate issue because so many things are now totally commercialised, including sport, ANZAC, Australia Day. But I think they have. Look, I was born in 1946. Uh, the First and Second World War had a huge impact on my family and you know, I will certainly always remember, and it is significant to me, but the whole idea that you know that is really a very specific group now within Australian society you know, I'm 68. Um, I'm sure there's an audience out there, but even that audience doesn't necessarily want to watch three whole, you know, major programs, and they don't necessarily want to be watching only Anzac because they might actually find it after a while rather depressing. So, I actually think they're vastly overestimated because I think for a lot of young Australians, first of all, it's not. It may be relevant in terms of Australian history, but it's not that necessarily relevant in terms of people's experience. And maybe for people, it's more of a tourism experience or something. Anyway, I think they've clearly miscalculated and over-invested. That's from my point of view. Mark, what do you think? Uh, I think so. But I think um, what I, I wrote a column about this last week, but what originally motivated me was an, uh, an advertisement by Australia Post, and they're selling selling in their shops these fans of Gallipoli products, so-called. There's coffee mugs, tea towels, coffee aprons, and this was before Woolworths, but I think this is just crass commercialisation, but I think with there's been too much this narrow focus on a certain rosy interpretation of 
Gallipoli, and I think, say, anyone who's read, say, A Fortunate Rice by Albert Facey would know that it was the reality was much grimmer than that. And I think maybe people... Have, there's a Hollywood at factor that's been put into this, and I think if the, there's the, the, the legend is actually much more disturbing, I think. OK, Lauren, are media getting a free pass to exploit Anzac... Anzac Day for their commercial gain? Because obviously these brands have copped all this backlash. Well, I think it's it's not just um, brands and the media, but it's also politicians that are benefiting from this myth of the Anzac and who are kind of jumping in on that and using that for their own political gain. So I, I find it kind of frustrating when, you know, the politicians come out and what, what Woolworths did was, you know, really, really quite crass and horrible. But then at the same time, you know, there was... The, the politicians will go up and they'll stand up at dawn services and, and get on the TV and use it for their own gain as well. So I think that it's really been forgotten what it's really about and um, that the media and politicians and brands are all just using this thing which should really be respected um, for, for their own gain. Yara, what do you think the Anzac coverage suggests about how maybe the media imagine their audience to be rather than how it is? Well, I think um, they imagine that the audience is very much connected to what happened in Gallipoli and perhaps uh, someone from Wendy Bacon's generation would be, someone who has um, a, a veteran in the family perhaps as well or a grandfather who passed away, um, you know, it, who, who would be connected in that sort of way. But I think a lot of people now would probably want the Gallipoli narrative in the framework of what are our soldiers doing now? Um, our soldiers, our vets from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from the Solomons, from East Timor. I think um, that's the sort of this coverage could have been better done if it included what's happening now, the current situation. Okay, so talking about the present, yeah, Wendy, I was going to ask, I mean, does this sort of uh, media this sort of myth-making, does that serve to justify current military uh, adventures? Well, I think uh, I think Lauren made a good p- point there that there is a sort of connection with our current political mm. narrative. I mean, it's also... Um, there has been some people attempt to correct that, but it's also a very male, it's a very white, it's also in the Middle East, it's sort of an adventure there. And in some ways, the nationalism of it is uh, playing into some very uh, unpleasant uh, sort of tendencies. One of the things that I want to say is that there's a whole angle that's relevant to my own generation that I don't think is being covered. And that is really, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, we'd had also had Anzac Day sort of shoved down our throats too as being you know, something that everybody had to be absolutely compliant about. And I think for a lot of people in my generation, certainly for my whole family, that there was a whole rejection of that idea. And that really linked into the whole building of the anti-war movement in the 1960s and 70s. And you know, I know my whole family attended the moratorium and partly because of the whole horror of war in our family. And I think that could have been perhaps and then linked through to the present you know what is our history of war and why are we doing what we're doing now but it hasn't been in that sort of critical fashion I suppose one has to ask that question that ties back to our dateline discussion if it had been you know would people have been watching and so I think they've made a commercial decision I think it's turning out to be a poor one the alternative could have been done but then you have to do way that in ways that can actually get an audience 
Yeah, OK, Mark, as the ABC, of course, is chasing a younger audience, do you think they're doing the right thing in focusing heavily on the Anzac centenary? Does this stuff resonate with younger viewers? Well, uh, it does, actually. What Wendy was saying about, you know, the anti-war sentiments, we had the death recently of Alan Seymour, who wrote a famous play before that called The One Day of the Year. But there was, a gen- to me, a resurgence, whether it was started under John Howard or not, I don't know, but where you had a big growth... In, in young people being interested and go, you know, making the visit to to um, Gallipoli. So I think there is a, a a genuine interest from young people there. But I'm concerned, I suppose, that whether the whole story is being told. Now to some interesting research out of Sydney University. Well, they've done an analysis of the comment sections of major online international news platforms to better understand how many commenters on news stories are male or female. And, well, it's not good news. They found that women made up anywhere between 3% and just 35% at best of all comments on news stories. Now, the study's author reckoned the findings reflect what we already know about gender and public conversations. The men always tend to dominate. She didn't, however, expect this to carry over to the online world where conversation spaces are often said to be a bit more democratic. Democratic they may be, but it turns out that that doesn't mean inclusive. Lauren, why do you think there might be this discrepancy? Does it have to do with the often aggressive nature of online comment threads? Definitely. I think that um, women online um, are just so publicly attacked whenever they say anything. I mean, personally, as a woman who's written about, particularly about women's issues, um, I've had everything from rape threats to death threats to my emails being hacked, um, all for making making comments on Twitter in support of something. And when women are being attacked in this public way so consistently, of course they're going to be pushed out of public spaces and online spaces. Um, I mean, even uh, the the women's website Jezebel, which is part of the Gawker Media Network, they complained to their own their own network because they got a new comment system which allowed people to to comment anonymously, and it was supposed to be able to to help um, journalists get anonymous um, tips. But what was happening was that they were being inundated with explicit um, gifs and and comments of women being attacked, and it wasn't until they went public that their own media network. Actually, at first they refused to, to turn off the comment system, even when they were saying, oh, no, but we're being sent all these horrible things and we would like it to stop. Um, and I just think that that the the amount of anger and the amount of abuse that women get online um, is just never-ending. And then, of course, they're going to, to leave the, those public spaces. Yara, doesn't the plethora of Australians' women's websites perhaps contradict this finding? Well, I used to work, well, I used to contribute to the uh, Australian women's magazine, The Hoopla, before it folded, uh, I think just very in recently. Last, yeah, in the last month or so. Um, and that kind of catered to this, this audience or this untapped audience, it seemed, of women who were interested in something a little bit different, um, but still um, still serious, uh, but, but something that, that they could, you know, read alongside with Marie Claire and those other women's magazines. Um, I think that, you know, that that's, that's folded for whatever reason, but I think that, um, you know, it would be a shame if there was all these women's magazines, uh, Birdie, you're, you're, you contribute to Birdie, for instance, uh, and, and still yet you get, you get trolls and you get threats and you get 
um, a lack of rep representation of women online uh, in terms of, of comments that you'd get or interaction because, uh, I mean, that, that would really drive what a newsroom would deliver if they know that their, their audience wants a certain thing or responds to um, certain articles in a certain way and wants more of a certain thing. I think that, that really does drive newsrooms into going in different directions. Are the shouty, ag aggressive tones, I suppose, of these comment sections, Wendy, do you think they're a male-driven phenomenon or perhaps how much has to do with anonymity? I think it is a male-driven uh, phenomenon. Um, I think to some extent it's also triggered and semi-organised. Um, I know, for example, my blog was once, I did quite an inoffensive story, it was almost like a news story about demonstration and I was mentioned on Andrew Bolt's um, blog and I then got this torrent of sort of hits and also abuse also uh, on Twitter. I noticed that younger women particularly suffer from this aggressive um, behaviour and and, you know, it is very off-putting, I think, just even the whole anger and aggressive, political aggressiveness behind it, as well as the sexism. But I do think we need to put this in the context of this was a study of uh, more major news sites, uh, I suspect, ma mainly what we call harder news and if you look at the media overall including our own media uh, when you're getting into that sphere and when you get you're certainly getting a domination of uh, male bylines as we we did an Australian Centre for Independence study on this a couple of years ago we had um, more male bylines more male sources and you know this is um, less for example on the ABC less on SBS as well you know where you've got public broadcasting you tend to have and certainly less on um, uh, community radio um, and pu public radio generally so where you have a public policy to kind of correct for some of this and people who are aware of it then women's voices are heard more but generally speaking also I've heard the people at the Sydney Morning Herald for example complain it's hard to get women uh, enough women's letters in, also opinion writing. So there is also this underlying thing of perhaps women not feeling they have a voice. But I think we're getting past that. And I think some of these other women's um, initiatives are extremely important for giving women a voice. Lauren, how do you think we can make these comment threads perhaps a bit more in inclusive? Um, I think... I don't know. I think moderation would, would be one thing in terms of taking away the, the downright abusive um, comments. But I do think that it is, as Wendy was saying, it's a bigger issue. It's about women in, in public spaces and how they feel and that we really need to start making um, that more inclusive and being, you know, allowing women to, to have more of a voice um, and encouraging them and keeping them safe when things you know, when things do get abusive, because I know that Twitter and Facebook have both come under fire for the way they respond to abuse targeted at women. Um, and that maybe if we could get that under control, that's a start. Yeah. Mark, I, th I thought this was interesting that they chose to look at comment threads, because as we know, the popularity of Facebook and Twitter as news sharing sites, well, they've really had an impact, I suppose, on comment sections. They're very popular these days, Facebook for, for news sharing, for instance. So do you think these comment threads, are they still relevant? I think they are, but I think they're, they're face under really strong competition from Facebook and Twitter. Um, to me, the, the, the conversations shifted quite a lot. I, I was a bit late coming to it, but I think particularly Facebook in particular has got an incredible reach, um, and it's much more 
in theoretically democratic, if you like, than than um, the old reader letters to the editor page. But um, you know, I I have been shocked though by the amount of trolling that goes on of women expressing an opinion. Um, you know, it, I, it's uh, appalling on social media. Wendy, you were saying before about people writing in letters to the editor. Now, it seems that some newspapers such as the SMH have actually taken to posting Facebook comments sort of as letters to the editor in a sense. Do you think they're getting, as a whole, less and less correspondence in this fashion? Well, I think we have to face the fact that the old letters page is part of legacy media and it's fading anyway, and so possibly uh, its days are, are, are quite numbered. And I think, you know, the, the more that the, the media bring the different facets of it into uh, a space, I can't see any problem with that at all. I actually think it is quite interesting on Facebook where you can control to some extent who is on your page. You can get some really good extended discussions. So it's pretty complicated, I think, because many spaces are opening up and it's true that some are still dominated by men and, of course, true that this underlying violence towards women is expressing itself verbally. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week on Fourth Estate. Don't worry, you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SER website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guests. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week.